0: History podcast, and uh, today I want to talk about the relationship that Harold Wilson, the British Prime Minister, had with uh, U.S. President Lyndon Johnson uh, in the mid nineteen sixties. Uh, and I think this is especially prescient um, for listeners in the USA. Um, there, there is a, something of an explanation to be had here because. Uh, Listeners in the UK will be generally very familiar of a a kind of a a fantasy notion that British governments, particularly British Prime Ministers, have uh, referred to often as the special relationship. It's an entirely one-sided concept, and it's almost never discussed in the corridors of power uh, in in the White House, the Pentagon, or on Capitol Hill. Um, And it's this it's that um, there is some kind of uh, Anglo-centric or Anglophone uh, bond that exists between America and Britain that was um, solidified by the experience of the Second World War and that for some unknown reason uh, American presidents look more favourably on Great Britain than they do on any other country in the world. Now, if this sounds like a delusion, it's because it, it is... Um, American presidents, uh, by and large, don't view Great Britain in this light. Not that they are, uh, for the most part, overly negative to Great Britain either. But some presidents and British Prime Ministers have uh, a better relationship. Think, for example, Tony Blair and Bill Clinton, Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan. Uh, But uh, on the whole, uh, Britain does not feature... Uh, as an American foreign policy pri- uh, priority, in the same way that America features as a, uh, a British foreign policy uh, priority. Uh, I remember that there was um, something uh, said to the effect of, uh, after nine eleven, 11 Britain's ambassador to the US was told by Tony Blair to essentially crawl up the White House's arse and stay there. Uh, and that There is perhaps no British Prime Minister quite like Blair to have placed all his eggs in one basket with the USA and to have miscalculated so spectacularly. But Harold Wilson perhaps comes close. Uh, Harold Wilson was elected in 1964 uh, and then in 1966, and he is one of the the few outstandingly successful, in electoral terms at least, British um, Labour Prime Ministers of the uh, 20th century. Um, The only person that comes close to that uh, record is, of course, Tony Blair. Harold Wilson um, prioritised a strong pound. He refused to devalue, even though the British economy was sailing into some choppy waters in the mid-1960s. He also refused to choose between um, high welfare spending or increasing welfare spending on uh, the NHS, on uh, education, on old age pensions and um, fairly lavish spending on Britain's overseas military presence and for Wilson who was a um, real kind of Anglocentric uh figure who saw uh, the world in particularly not particularly chosen say, cosmopolitan terms, he believed that a strong pound and military presidents east of Suez in uh, bases in, in the Middle East and Asia was the way in which Britain would continue to fly the flag. It was, a, a, for him, quite literally a, a prestige issue. The effect on Britain's public finances uh, and the, the British economy, obviously by the end of the 1960s, is significant. Uh, Wilson has to wait until 1967 when finally he has to uh, give in to the demands uh, of uh, the Treasury and devalue the pound. And at that point, it's seen by him as an immense humiliation. So what I'm going to read comes from Dominic Sandbrook's um, excellent um, second volume of his history of the 19 of, of post-war Britain, uh, White Heat. Uh, White Heat is a term. Um, that refers to um, uh, Wilson who said that Britain would be reforged in the white heat of uh, a new technological revolution um, which they certainly had a go at in the mid-1960s but it was of of questionable, questionable merit. Dominic Sandbrook writes, On the 11th of December 1964 Harold Wilson assembled his cabinet to fill them in on the details of his first trip to Washington as Prime Minister. He was clearly glowing with enthusiasm and pleasure after his reception in the White House and was eager to share his news with his colleagues. On the economy, for instance, he reported that President Lyndon Johnson has shown himself deeply concerned about our situation and virtually promised us all aid short of war. He also expressed an appreciation of the help which we had given him during the election and all that uh, and, and all that Harold Wilson's speeches had meant for him. At this last comment, Richard Crossman noted, some ministers had to struggle not to burst out laughing. But I fear the humour was entirely unconscious. Wilson, however, was cock-a-hoop with pride, and looking forward to a new era of Anglo-American relations. They want us with them, he said confidently. They want our new constructive ideas after the epoch of sterility. We are now in a position to influence events more than ever before in the last 10 years. So again, here we return to this this familiar um, British um, delusion. Um, It was one that Wilson shared with with Blair, Blair's belief in the question of the the Iraq war, that uh, Britain's main role would be to be the wise counsel to George W. Bush and to uh, advise and to steer in sensible directions um, was obviously a, a kind of a, an epic miscalculation, uh, where uh, Britain failed to see that in the eyes of the the kind of the neocons in Bush's cabinet that we were largely uh, an irrelevance to them. Margaret Thatcher also believed that she was um, the dominant part, the dominant player in the relationship with Reagan. Um, she viewed him as a good friend, but uh, she famously talked to her defence secretary, John Nott, and tapping her fores- forehead said, there's not much there, John, uh, when she had, after she had met Reagan. But the absurdity of all this uh, is that the, the last time that uh, American military planners, um, diplomats, and a US president viewed the British as being a kind of a, a font of, of wisdom on very much at all, It was midway through the Second World War, probably at about the time of the Casablanca Conference. Um, there is a, a lot written about that conference where the Americans, it was the last time really the Americans deferred to um, British um, uh, planning on the war and followed Churchill's Mediterranean strategy. And they did so in the belief that the, the British knew what they were doing and were a seasoned warlike people who could who could win this. The Americans obviously were largely untested in battle at, at this point. Within a year, um, the British had shown themselves to be reliant on American material, um, on American um, manpower, and were, you know, after um, several... Uh, missteps and errors in the Italian campaign uh, and then the various blunders in Normandy by General Montgomery um, or Field Marshal Montgomery Um, the view that the Americans had and Anthony Beaver writes about this excellently in his uh, book on uh, D-Day that the uh, view that the Americans had long after the end of the war and long into the Cold War that they were the the dominant strategic military and diplomatic power uh was immensely strengthened by Britain's fairly fairly weak showing throughout the war so by the time you get to the nineteen sixties or the nineteen eighties, the idea that um the 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 British have that the kind of influence that they imagine they do over the uh the uh, over whatever Ameri- sitting American president there is. Is is largely fictitious. However, it's to some extent understandable. Since 1945, British Prime Ministers uh, universally have presided over relative economic and strategic decline. Each uh, generation of British governments has seen roughly the same problem of a faltering, struggling economy. Um, of withdrawal from Britain's imperial um, holdings around the world, and the inexorable rise of uh, American power, uh, soft and hard. So the belief that this can be influenced and shaped in some way, that Britain isn't redundant and British Prime Ministers can be called as wise Merlin figures to the White House to explain how the world really works... is a a compelling, if misguided, one. Dominic Sandler writes, From the very first day that he came into office, Harold Wilson was a keen proponent of Britain's supposedly special relationship with the United States. In their 13 long years of opposition, Labour's leaders have been unstinting in their support for the Cold War, and many of the party's young revisionist intellectuals made no secret of their admiration for all things American. The party had a strong tradition of pro-American Atlanticism going back to the 1940s. and By the time Labour regained power in 1964, the links between the two countries had become even stronger. To take one example, Britain had become dependent on the Americans for its nuclear technology, notably for the Polaris nuclear submarine system for which Harold Macmillan had negotiated in 1962. Instead of having its own independent deterrent, as had been promised in the 50s, Britain had ended up as a kind of nuclear client state, with American bombers stationed on its soil and Polaris submarines controlled from Washington drifting uh, beneath the waters of the Firth and the Clyde. The new government was well aware that, given Britain's dependence on the United States, they had to tread carefully. Two months before the election, Patrick Gordon Walker, the foreign affairs spokesman, noted that we must base our policy on the alliance with the US. Accordingly, as soon as he had taken office, Wilson sent his new Foreign Secretary off to Washington to assure the Americans of his continued support. This first meeting passed off successfully, and in the months that followed, Wilson and Callahan made sure they kept the Americans informed about their various financial manoeuvres. During the sterling crisis of November 1964, Wilson sent two officials across the Atlantic to consult the Americans about increasing uh, the, about increasing bank rates, and in March 1965, President Johnson's chief economic adviser told him that, in spite of British secrecy, Jim Callahan told me last November 7th, for your eyes only, what was going to be in their budget a few days later. Had word of this leaked out in Britain, it would have been extremely damaging for Callahan and Wilson, but it reflected their enormous belief and confidence in the American alliance. So, one of the key features of uh, British um, stability in the 50s and 60s was the uh, strength of the pound. The pound had come under relentless attack.
1: One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, It's a, it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on.
0: in 1956 as a result of the Suez Crisis, uh, and it was the US President Eisenhower that used the value of the pound as leverage to prevent Britain's um, escapades in the Middle East from continuing. And from that point onwards, all US presidents knew that Britain could be effectively vetoed in foreign policy terms through the vulnerability of the pound to fluctuations in its value. Since 1947, the pound had become fully convertible, so the old wartime um, currency controls that prevented um, large amounts of money flowing out of the country had been dismantled, and this in 1947 had plunged the pound into crisis. It makes sense by the 1960s that Jim Callaghan, then the Chancellor of the Exchequer in uh, Wilson's government, um, be uh, very, very cautious about American intentions regarding the British economy and be happy to uh, consult with them uh, and let them know um, pretty much everything they need to, to know about what is happening in the budget uh, and whether Britain is a sensible investment for American capital. Wilson was keen to ensure that if there was another sterling crisis, that he could rely on American banks to join with the uh, US Federal Reserve to buy sterling and thus prop up its value. Again, this was, I think, naive optimism. However, Wilson believed that he held... Uh, something of a trump card uh, in that America's preoccupation with Vietnam gave Britain uh, leverage, particularly in Asia. The British who were uh, having all sorts of difficulties with the uh, colony of Southern Rhodesia, which is something that I'll have to return to a, in a different podcast um, because i not really the scope for it right now, um relied on American support and American backing for their uh, policy uh, towards the, the, the white settlers there. However, the uh, issue of uh, Vietnam uh, required um, America to call on Britain to, uh, to reciprocate. Um, Johnson wanted to ensure that Britain would hold on to its military bases and to commit to immense uh, military spending uh, east of Suez uh, in order to help the American uh, military uh, supply itself uh, in um, Vietnam. The uh, link there is that uh, British uh, naval bases in the Middle East, uh, places like Aden, uh, were really, really important to ensure um, that... The oil supply um, was uh, from the Middle East was, was secured, uh, and that uh, fuel supplies uh, made their way to uh, America and also to uh, American forces in the Middle East, in uh, Vietnam. Um, Sandbrook writes, "The issue of Vietnam dominated relations between two countries, Britain and America, for the remainder of the sixties, and it also had a profound effect on Wilson's standing within his own party." However, as the American presence in Vietnam increased during the early months of 1965, culminating in the arrival of the Marines in March, Wilson's position became rather more complicated. Even at this early stage, some British diplomats were were already reporting that the cause was lost and few officials approved of the Americans' heavy-handed military strategy. British officials already had experience of fighting guerrillas in Southeast Asia, Between 1948 and 1960, they had successfully staved off off a communist rebellion in Malaya. And in 1965, British forces were still engaged in the confrontation with Indonesia over the disputed Malaysian border in Borneo. Some historians even argue that Britain's involvement in Malaysia was a blessing in disguise since it tied up troops and resources that might otherwise have been sent to Vietnam. Either way, by February 1965, Wilson was sufficiently alarmed By the escalation of American operations in Vietnam, to stay up until 3:30 in the morning, so that he could bring the president to suggest that he fly over to Washington and give him some advice. Once again, we come back to this uh, sense, uh, inflated sense um, that British prime ministers invariably have on the subject of advice. Johnson's reaction suggested how much he valued Wilson's counsel. I won't tell you how to run Malaysia. And you don't tell us how to run Vietnam, he shouted. If you want to help us some in Vietnam, send us some men and send us some folks to deal with these guerrillas. Now, if you don't feel like doing that, go on with your Malaysian problem. Well, the British didn't send troops to Vietnam, but they certainly did send advisers. The British had become uh, experts in jungle warfare not just as a result of the Second World War, but, of course, the Malaya insurgency uh, that ran from the late 1940s into the 1960s. Um, The uh, British uh, SAS and the Gurkhas uh, and other uh, specialist fighting units um, had been very, very effective uh, against um, uh, Chinese and Malay communists in the Malay jungles um, and had been uh, brutal in their prosecution of guerrilla warfare as these things uh, always are in counterinsurgency uh, operations and some of this advice and expertise was sought after by uh, uh, America. The um, thing that was most valuable however was the idea that the, the British might come in on the Vietnam War and present a kind of a united western front in the, uh, the the struggle in, in Vietnam. Now earlier in this podcast, I made a comparison between um, Wilson and Tony Blair. Um, Tony Blair, after 9 eleven um, committed to um, George W. Bush unequivocally uh, the um, uh, support of Great Britain uh, diplomatic and and military. Um, in a private conversation at Camp David, Saying that um, Britain was there uh, all the way um, without, rec- without recourse to even discussing it with uh, Cabinet, uh, and made a uh, promise to Bush. Wilson had huge doubts about Vietnam, and he um, didn't express these in public, didn't break with um, his uh, really kind of sycophancy to um, Johnson. But the uh, the war was immensely unpopular in Great Britain, um, and British um, uh, the British Labour Party uh, was largely uh, unsupportive of it, and that the possibility of a backbench mutiny was was there if Wilson committed to to Vietnam. Uh, On the 4th of March, 49 MPs put down a motion calling for the government to disavow American policy. Uh, This was really uh, as a result of uh, American bombing of North Vietnam. In June, uh, 50 MPs signed a private letter to Wilson expressing their anxiety at the escalation of the conflict. And in September, at a party conference, a succession of speakers attacked his reluctance to criticise the American bombing. But Wilson stuck to his guns on the 19th of July He warned the House that if the Americans pulled out of Vietnam, the results would be incalculable, since friend and potential foe throughout the world would begin to wonder whether the United States might be induced also to abandon other allies when the going got rough. This was a foreign policy born of weakness, however. Um, The British needed the support of uh, America in their various uh, post-colonial hotspots around the world in southern Africa, in Malaya and, uh, and other such places, um, and the weakness of the pound also meant that Britain always had to keep uh, America relatively happy. Some labor backbenchers benches and even some Conservatives had deep suspicions that pressure on the pound from uh, America would make... Uh, British involvement um, in the the introduction of British ground troops into Vietnam, almost an inevitability. This, it was suspected, would be followed by uh, an American uh, bailout of the pound once uh, British troops set sail for Vietnam. Now, it's interesting to note that in uh, 1965, when there was uh, another uh, sterling crisis... Um, Johnson's National Security adviser, uh, McGeorge Bundy said we want to make very sure that the British get it into their heads that it makes no sense for us to rescue the pound in a situation uh, in which there is no British flag in Vietnam and a threatened British thin-out in both east of Suez uh, and in Germany what I would like to say to them myself is that a British brigade in Vietnam would be worth a billion dollars at the moment of truth for sterling. Fortunately for Wilson, all that was requested when Callahan went yet again to Washington for a bailout and the uh, Federal Reserve um, bought uh, larger amounts of pounds sterling uh, to proper its value was that the British maintained their commitment to holding on to expensive basis east of Suez So the uh, d- the need for um, Britain to become involved in Vietnam as uh, part of the uh, part of the, the deal to prop up the pound was never never fully called upon. Um, the maintain maintenance of bases east of Suez was a costly business in itself, especially at a time with uh, uh, Britain having an expanding uh, welfare state. And uh, a problem of relative economic decline um, throughout uh, the post war era. It's also important to note that the bailout package from America in 1965 came with strict, e- stringent economic um, uh, conditions uh, attached, particularly uh, a tough wages policy uh, of uh, wage repression, building a, a low wage economy, or preventing. Upward pressures from uh, trade unions um, and uh, the upward inflationary pressures. Um, and this meant that, in many ways, in the mid 1960s, um, British uh, economic policy, and therefore most other aspects of policy, were, was not necessarily being completely determined from Washington, but was heavily influenced from there. Anyway, I hope you found this useful and interesting, and I'll catch you on the next Explaining History podcast. Uh, Do, if you can, support us on Patreon. It's um, a tiny, tiny trickle of ad revenue. keeps this podcast going um, and obviously the support of our uh, patrons here. So thanks very much for your time and I'll catch you on the next podcast. All the best. Bye-bye.
1: Selling a little or a lot?